What time is it? What time is it? Time is it? Time is it? Time is it? While they get ready for uh, play down here on the field, I'm going to toss you up to the booth and my esteemed colleague, Bubba Linebacker, all pro. Bubba, take it away. Thank you, Terry. I'll handle the introduction. Since the dawn of time, men have had a very deep desire to tackle each other. But tackling each other just for tackling's sake is dumb. You can't just do that. Well, you can't. So, a game was invented for both the purpose of entertainment and to satisfy our deep desires of giving each other concussions and tearing our own or others ACLs. Yes, football. The American kind. The game where you put on protective padding and put your entire body and kinetic energy into another man's sternum. There's more to this story than just legally hurting each other. This is the history of American football, I guess. Well, as you've probably figured out, we're tackling football this episode. Well, hang on. We might step out of bounds a couple of times. I need that ball. Get me the ball. You need the ball. Get me the ball. It doesn't seem fair to talk about football without talking about the focus of it all. That would be the ball itself, the football. Yeah, from the time man tossed animal innards around in the street for fun till now, the football has undergone quite a number of progressions. But despite all its transformations over the years, it still remains the ball. And possessing it is, well, everything. Needless to say, the official manufacturer of footballs for the NFL, well, they're very proud of theirs, and rightfully so. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Take me through 
the process? How do you make a football? So the process that we do in the factory, the first step you have here is uh, Jane, who actually sews our footballs. When we sew footballs, we sew them inside out. Jane, tell me, how long have you been doing this? Last Friday, I had uh, 46 years with the factory. I haven't done the same thing for 46 days in a row. But that's pretty cool to be able to watch the Super Bowl and be like, yeah, I made that football. There's a great possibility that I touched that football out there on the field. There's just two of us in the factory that makes all the footballs for the NFL. So, so wait, wait. Out of all the NFL games, only two people make NFL footballs? Yes. After she sews a football, she then passes it on to the turner, where Jim will actually turn the football right side out. And if you notice, it's it's stiff, and so I have to put it in this steam box to make the leather more pliable so that I can turn it through that hole. It's like a toaster oven. Begin to work it through. At the factory, we have seven turners that do this job. They'll do anywhere between 400 and 600 footballs a day. You must have very strong hands. And then it goes on to Donna, where she actually inserts the bladder, which holds the air in the football. And then she'll lace the football up. I lace about 250 balls a day. So do you wear Velcro shoes so you don't have to lace them? Yes. And there's no knots in our laces. After the ball is molded, the air pressure will actually tighten the laces and hold them all in place. And all of our footballs are hand-laced. There's no machine that does this. You are a machine, Donna. And then after Donna finishes that, she hands it on to Pam where we mold the football. How many balls do you mold a day? About 2,000 they mold a day. I mean, it seems like a long time. Yeah, mold faster. <laughs> what do you do when you just wait? You can sing some songs, hum some Rihanna. There we go. All right. We then have to measure the football. It doesn't meet the specs of an NFL game ball. Are the seams perfect? Are the laces perfect? And then if it's good, we send it for the NFL for the game. How many footballs do you make every year? Over 700,000 game footballs a year. How many footballs are used in an NFL game on average, do you know? It's different for every team. Um, it's usually up to the quarterback of how many uh, footballs they want to bring on the field. Each quarterback likes things, balls prepared differently. Some like them literally what we call right out of the box. Some really like them brushed. Some really like them worked in so it's really different for each and every quarterback um, but it's all about what does that quarterback like and or receiver like and how they prepare their footballs so that was fun i got to actually help make my own football i didn't do much mind you uh the hard work was done by people who have worked for wilson for 20 30 40 years they made the footballs that we grew up playing with that's really really cool and now i've got my own football signed by me And when I got down there again, I seen that them men had got in two little bitty bunches down there. They had rail close together, and they voted. <laughs> they did. They voted and elected one man apiece. And them two men come out in the middle of that cow pasture and shook hands like they hadn't seen one another in a long time. And then a convict come over to where they was a standing, and he took out a quarter, and they come in to odd man right there. <laughs> they did. Well, after a while, I seen what it was that there's odd man in fault. It was that both bunches full of them men wanted this funny-looking little pumpkin to play with. They did, and I know, friends, that they couldn't eat it because they kicked it the whole evening and it never busted. <laughs>
Television played a big role in the increase in the popularity of football in the 60s. From the comfort of their own homes or favorite bar, fans could watch fearsome named players annihilate their opponents. Names such as Jack Youngblood, Deacon Jones, Jack Tatum, Dick Butkus. The NFL and the networks were loving it. But there was a name so fearsome that it still strikes a note of terror in the folks at both the NFL and the networks, especially NBC. Even to this day, it's legendary. You ask, what name could that be? Well, if you're a network executive, let's just say you can run, but you cannot hidey. The following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. From the Oakland Coliseum, the House of Horrors, NBC aired one of the AFL's great rivalries. Daryl LaMonica's Raiders hosting Joe Namath's New York Jets. The game evolved into an epic seesaw battle best told by the legendary voice of John Facenda. The lead changed back and forth six times before the score was finally tied at 29-all. Then the Jets' Jim Turner kicked a 26-yard field goal, and the Jets had the lead with one minute five seconds left. At 7 p.m., NBC had scheduled a kids' movie named Heidi. It was determined to air Heidi at 7 o'clock, and if football wasn't over, we would still go to Heidi at 7 o'clock. NBC executives wishing to stay with the game failed in their frantic efforts to contact the broadcast center. Thousands of concerned viewers had flooded the phone lines and blown out the switchboard. I thought, well, I have not been given any countermanding order, so I've got to do what we agreed to do. While Charlie Smith gained 20 yards, the network televising the game made the classic blunder. NBC turned off the uncompleted game in favor of a kiddie special called Heidi. The guy pushes the button at 7 o'clock and away they went. And here's the game going right down the crapper. And I breathed a big sigh of relief. I'm sure I was the only person in the country who did. While NBC viewers, except those on the West Coast, were subjected to Heidi frolicking among mountain goats. The Raiders made goats of NBC. Monica to Charlie Smith. subsequent kickoff, Jets teammates collided. The Raiders recovered the fumble for their second touchdown in nine seconds and went on to win by 11 points. And the Oakland Coliseum became an enormous secret love-in called the Heidi Bowl. We knew that we won the game. The people in the stadium knew we won the game. But the people who were watching on television across the country thought that the Jets won and we lost. So we ran a, a flash test in a little crawl, uh, informing everybody of the final score. It was where the uh, little girl cousin who has been crippled is trying desperately to walk for the first time. I jumped up and screamed. The screams in New York lingered long after the game ended. I landed at the airport. My father said, what's wrong? He said, you should be happy because you guys beat the Raiders. I said, Dad, what are you talking about? He said, when they interrupted the game, you guys were up by seven, eight points or whatever it was. I said, yeah, but we lost the game by 11. Oh, that girl is interrupting my life again. 
I do recall about a week after the show went on the air that NBC took out a full-page ad with great quotes from the critics about Heidi. The very last quote was, well, I didn't get to see the show, but I hear it was real good. Signed, Joe Namath. The 68 Jets-Raiders game was voted the greatest regular season contest of all time. Not because of Don Maynard's 228 receiving yards, still a Jets record, or even the Raiders' nine-second scoring explosion. But for a little girl who stole the show. That was the greatest promotion that the AFL ever had was the Heidi game. I don't know, 10 years earlier, if you did the same thing on a, on a telecast, would you get that kind of an uproar? I don't know, but you sure did at that point in time, and it sure lets you know that you better not take my football away from me at 7 o'clock. You would have thought that NBC would have learned their lesson, you know, with the hottie bowl. But seven years later, <clears throat> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and the new contractual changes that the NFL had with NBC caused a bit of a problem. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in this photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc., fax mentis incendium gloria culpum, etc., etc., memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. Confronted once again with the dilemma of televising a tension-packed pro football game to its conclusion or of showing a widely anticipated children's film on schedule, NBC chose the game and drew angry calls from parents of denied, tearful children. When the children went to family sets at 7 p.m. expecting to watch Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the screen was usurped by the Washington Redskins and the Oakland Raiders, locked in a 23-23 tie. The game went into overtime, and before George Blanda's three-point field goal won the game for Oakland, 26-23, nearly 45 minutes of Willy Wonka had been denied the youngsters, keyed up after a week of heavy advertising. And the kids were upset, to say the least. That's all right. We'll show it on something other than NBC next time. NBC being the network is not the only common thread between these two events. Did you happen to notice that the team involved, one of the teams involved in both events was, was the Raiders? Yeah, the Raiders. That team must be bad luck. Hey, maybe that's why they uh, moved to Vegas, you think? Beaver! If it wasn't the networks raising the level of fan irritability, it was the league itself. Yeah, the NFL, more specifically in the form of referees and questionable calls on the field. After all, nothing seems to get the fan more involved. But these Cleveland fans are irate. And they're trying to clear the end zone. Yeah, well, the Cleveland fans aren't helping any right now by throwing stuff on the field. They got no better than that. And it's frustrating. The players are frustrating as well. The players are sitting on the sideline, looking around days, trying to figure out how this happened. So, 
Well, the, what the, the officials need to do is they need to get on the PA and get control of this game and get control of the fans. They're letting it get out of control because they're not communicating what's going on. Now, if, if the ball is in D Jacksonville, then just call the game and get these guys off the field. It's not worth somebody getting hurt. If the fans are going to throw crap on the field, take control and get the players off the field. This is this is ridiculous. And now they're going to call. That the is game. the end of the game. Unbelievable. Now they call the game. Well, that was With the right 48 call. 48 seconds to go. Yeah, you got to take. The I think that. I think this has been just a fiasco by the referees today. It seems there's no, no limit to fan involvement. Second down, 20, 5.03 to go. Someone has run on the field. Some guy with a brawl. And now he's not being chased. He's running down the middle of the 40. Arms in the air and a victory salute. He's pulling down his pants. Put up your pants, my man. Pull up those pants. He's being chased to the 30. He breaks a tackle from a security guard. The 20, down the middle, the 10, the 5. He slides at the 1, and they converge on him at the goal line. Pull up your pants, take off the paw, and be a man. Words of wisdom, if I ever heard them. And speaking of words of wisdom, it's time to hear words of encouragement from our sponsors. It's uh, halftime. We'll take a short break and be ready to kick some butt on the second half. Now breaking, let's head to the locker room. Ready, break. to be most popular not in a rush not to be real bourbon no apologies if it's for you you'll know ah thank you wild turkey it'll find you are you feeling sluggish and slow like a turtle in a shell you don't have to drag your feet anymore with the help of token turtle cbd in aranda's past texas their store offers a wide range of cbd options including flour pre-rolls edibles relief rubs vapes and more to help you move and groove with ease. And the best part, CBD has been known to help with skin issues, inhibit cancer cell growth, stress, anxiety, PTSD, epilepsy, and even lower your A1C. So say goodbye to sluggishness and hello to a new zest for life. Visit Token Turtle CBD at 361 South Commercial Street, Suite F, or check out their website at shoptokenturtles.com to learn more. You can even give him a call at 361-434-0063 if you just have any questions or just want to chat with the friendly staff. So why not come out of your shell and see what all the fuss is about 
Token Turtle CBD is available seven days a week from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., so there's always time to give them a try. Plus, who knows? Maybe you'll discover your inner Zen Turtle. Today, the uh, 1.0 podcast. We really like to hear from our listeners. Email or voicemail. Also, check out our Facebook page. Surf's up. Got a boogie. Sometimes you gotta stay in. And you know where I live. Yeah, you know what we is. Sometimes you gotta stay in. Welcome to my house. Baby, take control now. We can't even slow. I've grown up and been around football all my life. And not that that's a bad thing at all. The principles and the, well, what I was taught about football, I believe, helped me be who I think I am these days. And that's thanks in no small part to my father, who was more than keen on football. So keen, in fact, he had a very interesting side gig when I was very, very young. One that it turns out he was pretty good at. There's the terminology building a house in football. Well, this is the house that Jack built. I'll tell you what, I'll let my older brother Brian tell the story. He used to be my quarterback when I was a little kid. Yeah. Amid the combination of Thanksgiving football, upcoming playoffs and family reflections, I wanted to take some time to recognize and share a special set of events involving our dad, Jack Thompson Jr., born in 1927 and died in 1995. He had co-founded a semi-pro football team and had coached that team, known as the Chillicothe Vikings of the Tri-State and Red River Semi-Pro Football Leagues. The early 1960s were a transition period with modern-day football in its infancy. In fact, it was at the cusp of an emergence to hypergrowth with TV contracts and pre-million dollar players. Teams in the region, such as the Dallas Cowboys, Houston Oilers, who would later become the Tennessee Titans, and Dallas Texans, who would later become the Kansas City Chiefs, it was at this period that a band of West Texas upstarts, in private lives, bankers, salesmen, teachers, ranchers, and the like, would put a unique talent together for the love of the game, in spite of token pay. Fall Saturday nights were reserved and set the stage for an unbelievable accomplishment for a tiny town's pride and joy, as they would take to the field attired in green and white, identical to the New York Jets. Initially, the Vikings, starring notable former TCU defensive end R.C. Harris and University of Texas tackle Don Cyclone Malone, plowed through a 15-game winning streak before their first regular season loss, then on to one tie and just one more season loss before totaling three championship games and two league titles and one state title. The most memorable championship was a 1963 Texas semi-pro match against the Houston Flyers, comprised of ex-pro players from the 49ers, Patriots, Cardinals, Whalers, and Rams in an extremely cold game reminiscent of the 67 Ice Bowl at Lambeau Field. Because of that lopsided match, this would later be referred to as the David and Goliath Bowl. The Vikings went on to win that game 27 to nothing. The last game in December of 1964 was the last championship match and the only other loss to the Vikings. The success of the Vikings, ironically, was part of their demise. Great management and attendance had the team in the black. Not so fortunate for the other teams that existed primarily out of pocket. The league eventually folded, and with it, a unique talent 
of a now bygone era. For a kid like me, they were, and still are, larger than life. Against the wind We were running against the wind We were young and strong We were running against the wind In my youth, being native Texan, my natural choice for a pro NFL team to root for was the Dallas Cowboys. And though I know that Eddie LeBaron was the Cowboys' first quarterback, the quarterback I associate most with seeing on TV uh, and actually got to meet when I was a little kid was a quarterback who changed the game a little bit. A quarterback who didn't just have an arm but had a personality that would you know, come to help him later on after he left football in another career altogether. And a quarterback who was native Texan. From Mount Vernon, Texas, I'm talking about Dandy Don Meredith. When I came home, I was only home about a month and a half, and I had a football scholarship, and I played halfback on the football scholarship. I graduated from Houston uh, University in 1950 and was a coach for 30 years. Uh, like that's when I, well, I like I coached at Mount Vernon, and I lived just down a block and a half from Don Meredith. He was a, in elementary school. He was a five-year-old when I was going to school. I, I started to play coaching Don Meredith when he was about four or five years old, and then coached him in high school because I passed his house every day, uh, going, and his brother Jack, they'd be out in their yard playing football, and I'd pass to him. We'd play apple touch football game. But Don was my three by quarterback for the three years I coached in Mount Vernon. I guess the the thing I tell about Don, the people ask about what kind of guy Don Meredith was, and I, I did a lot of things with Don Meredith over, over the years in high school, and even when I came to Thomas Jefferson uh, in Dallas, well, he was at SMU. He played for SMU, and I, I was coaching it. And he came over and helped my players at, at Thomas Jefferson uh, a few times. Uh, I asked him to come over and show him how to pass and tell him how to play quarterback. Uh, but uh, Don was uh, a very interesting person. He says everybody liked Don. I mean, Don was very was the most liked kid in high school. He was a valedictorian and uh, and really smart and. I think the thing about Don that I know that everywhere he was in high school, nobody was jealous of him, and he was most outstanding and most popular. And of course, porters went to him, and uh, same at SMU. And when he was played for the Cowboys, everybody liked him. But and I, I think I can tell a little story that kind of explains Don. When he was in high school, we were down in the school cafeteria and uh, all the kids went came in to eat lunch at the school cafeteria and uh, they'd have their groups they'd sit with well, of course don in there with you always had to well anyway this day this what don did was he was sitting down there with his group and they were all laughing and having a good time and there was a 
little country girl sitting over at a table by herself. She drove, rode the bus. She's a very plain, simple country girl. And, you know, he, he so Don was well with this big group, and she was there. So Don got it up and left and went over and sat with her to make her feel at home. And it really affected that little girl. I mean, that, that, that's just the kind of guy he was. Instead of he, he, he was thoughtful of other people. But that girl, it really made her. She, she ended up being a pretty outstanding kid after it. But up till, till Don started uh, being friends with her. But, uh, I thought that's a pretty good story that uh, to, for Don to be sitting with his group and to leave them and go over and sit with her. Of course, the other group went, went too. And, and she started eating with that group. Did you ever watch him on Monday Night Football? Oh, yeah. He he mentioned my name on Monday Night Football one time. Stand by, Howard. Here we come, Frank. Ready, John? Stand by, Oyo, you open. And roll tape. Take tape. He and Howard Cosell was... Uh, talking, you know, Howard Cosell is kind of a, uh, he, he's not a football, he wasn't a football man anyway, and uh, Howard Cosell said something about uh, the, that they were watching a football game and how these guys were blocking or how they were covering a passer, and Don said, uh, Don said, oh, Cosell said, my high school coaches, uh, Robbie Campbell and Wayne Pierce taught me that in high school. That, that was the only time I've ever been mentioned on national television, I'm sure. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, you're telling me it didn't occur to anyone that uh, he may have wanted to be alone with the girl? I tell you. Don Meredith, Frank Gifford, and Howard Cosell set the trend for sportscasts on Monday Night Football each contributing their unique talents to create a dynamic and entertaining viewing experience. In particular, Don Meredith's lively and charismatic personality played a pivotal role in shaping the show's success. When Monday Night Football premiered in 1970, it was a groundbreaking concept. The show aimed to bring football to primetime television and inject a new level of excitement and entertainment into sports broadcasting. Known for his down-home humor and southern drawl, Meredith quickly became a fan favorite. His ability to blend football analysis with light-hearted banter brought about a new level of relatability and entertainment to the broadcast. Whether it was his iconic catchphrases or engaging storytelling, Meredith had a knack for captivating the audience and keeping them invested in the game. Meredith's laid-back and jokey demeanor resonated with viewers making them feel as though they were watching the game with a friend. My time growing up and you know my early exposure to football that would encompass the time from the groovy 60s to the funky 70s. Well during that time football had taken over the world. No longer just an American obsession. 
this game has spread like wildfire to unexpected places like Germany and Japan. Football fever is even heating up in England, where they've caught the American football bug. It reminds me of the time, well, of the semi-professional leagues and that time period of the NFL. That's cool. Maybe we can learn to play football and keep our wars on the gridiron where they belong. Yeah. And with that, it looks as though the clock's run out. Till next time, I'm Terry Thompson. This is the ABI 1.0 podcast. See ya. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all good things must end. Call it a night. The party's over. And tomorrow and next year starts the same old thing again. And the only thing else I got to say is, how about them Process complete.